What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Lively Charleston podcast. In today's episode, we are hanging out with Amy Barch. She's the founder of the nonprofit organization Turn 90, which was started right here in Charleston. And its purpose is to give men coming out of prison an opportunity to be successful when they re-enter back into society. And so they provide supportive services, they give them work, they teach cognitive behavioral therapy classes, which we'll talk more about in the interview, um, and they really prepare them for success in this next journey, in this next chapter of their life. Uh, she's a really interesting woman, uh, really powerful and strong and committed to what it is to the work that she's doing. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and get a lot from it. So with that being said, let's dive into it. All right, Miss Amy Bart, welcome officially to the Lively Charleston podcast. It is a pleasure to have you on here. So excited. Yeah. So uh, we have a lot of really interesting things to talk about. I'm very excited about this. And we're going to get into all that. But first of all, let's take it back to the very beginning. You're a California girl, mm -hmm. uh, originally. Northern California. Northern California. I feel like there's a distinction. Really? What's the yeah. distinction? Weather, for sure. Okay. You guys have the... Cold weather. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in a very foggy, sort of mild climate. And by cold, do you mean like 65? Exactly <laughs> what I mean. Because <laughs> I grew up in Colorado, where it gets below yeah. zero. No, no. So right. cold. That's but, exactly okay. right. Okay. Right. So I could see the Pacific Ocean out of our front window, oh, but wow. I never got in it because it's too cold. The water oh, was too cold. I love the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, and I never saw the snow when I was a child. Really? Yeah. So you just, you snow. have this thing with cold. Was, yeah. yeah. Not a big fan? Not and a big now fan. And now you live in Charleston. Here, and which is, right. <laughs> There's, it's not, it's not a, an accident. We're connecting the dots here. Right. Okay. Fair. I love the Pacific Ocean. I got to go out there to California for a, uh, like a, a business event years ago. And cool. part Where of it at? was like, we all went in uh, Laguna Beach. Mm. And we all went and dove into the ocean uh, and did this whole thing in like, at like midnight too, which is kind of scary. Um, but it was all, it was freezing and I loved it. It was. Yeah. I never I had, I lived there for 12 years. I never had that experience. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. All right. We, yeah. Is that on the bucket list or like you're happy never I'm going in South in there. Carolina? I love it here. Yeah. It's warm. Yeah. It feels good. Okay. All right. Hey, fair enough. We like what we like. Okay. So Northern California, the cold mm -hmm. section of California. Right. Um, and when you wanted to grow up, or excuse me, when you grew up, you went through, you had a couple of different things. You wanted to be a police officer. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. I feel like that was just, um, I had an uncle who was a police officer. I think I was called toward wanting to do something to help others. So I think there is a, a trajectory in between the police officer and me running a nonprofit that helps men out of prison, but it's definitely not linear. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so definitely not linear. So I, when I was younger, I thought about being a police officer, but then, uh, but then that was fleeting. Okay. Was there, was there something specifically that kind of veered you away from that? Or did you just feel like you could have a bigger impact elsewhere? I feel like even at a young age, I was very aware of, um, equality differences. And even as a child, I remember being concerned about people who were homeless and people who, you know, were adopted and people didn't have as much as we did. So I, I feel like I, I had that sense um, more acutely than other kids. Uh, and so it stayed with me. And then when I got older, um, I struggled with it when I was coming out of my teenage years and into my t 20s. And I was also very much like a rebel child. 
um, or a rub, you know, I, I like to push the envelope. I like to take risks. Um, I like to do everything head first. I just, I'm like a go big person. Yeah. Just do it. Let's go big. And so, you know how that comes out in teenage years or twenties. And then I think I was also battling this sort of sense of privilege and how to reconcile that in my own life. And I wanted to go big, but going big felt like I was going big for myself. And it felt like it was, um, I don't want to say like selfish, but it felt like I had a responsibility to something bigger and I didn't know how to tap into that. And I really, I really struggled with it. Yeah. And so, um, okay, well, well, let's, let's jump right into it. So, okay. so you, how did you manage that struggle and, and how did you, what sort of decisions did you make during that time that kind of led up to you ultimately starting this nonprofit? Well, I decided, I don't know if I actually decided like thoughtfully, but how it went was that I decided not to go to college and I decided I was going to live more of a bohemian style life. What does that mean? So I thought that I would just get a one-way ticket to Europe and just see what happens. And I basically got a three-month rail pass and a backpack and got a one-way ticket and just just took off. That and sounds awesome. So, that, I mean, I just kind of thought, you know, I'm not – what I, I think I wasn't in – I wasn't intentional about it in my thought at the time, but retrospectively, I think that was coming from a place of I was refusing to participate in sort of corporate America and this sort of ladder climbing towards the ultimate goal of wealth and accumulation. And I just, I didn't want to participate in that. And it felt to me like the way that I could be true to what I was feeling around my privilege was through sort of relinquishing my position so you didn't even you never even got into the you didn't have to exit the rat race you never even entered it no you just so how old were you when you moved over to your or when you started traveling europe i was 21 so before that i was sort of dabbling in community community college but mostly just partying and also traveling so i um did like a three-month car camping trip around the country just sort of bumming around. Honestly, it was like waiting tables to, to bum around and have fun with friends. And then I just sort of decided, you know what, I'm going to quit school entirely and I'm just going to go to Europe and then just, you know, continue the bohemian kind of lifestyle. Um, and so I think I was 21 or 22. I turned 22 when I was there. I left when I was 21 and I turned 22 when I was there. So you were a free spirit. I was. You could do whatever I, you wanted. I was very much a free spirit. And the funny thing, I thought I was a hippie um, until I actually lived in this sort of like hippie commune until you met some real hippies exactly <laughs> and then i realized i was not a hippie at all what was the difference between you and the real hippies so well i mean i can't speak for all the hippies i can only speak for the the hippies <laughs> the that i, that I was met, yeah. that's right that i was living with for a time well well let me let me kind of take you on my trajectory so i i bummed around was having a blast had a great time ran sort of ran out of money um and decided that i was now going to sort of like you know you know, rubber meets the road now. This is where I'm sort of going to start actually living out this uh, life, um, you know, that doesn't involve the ladder climbing in corporate America and, you know, participating in these sort of like, you know, you know, money-based values. Uh, and so I decided, now this was pre-cell phone for me at least, um, and I went to an internet cafe and I found this, uh, this woofing thing. It's like a worldwide organic farming and I, I got on there and I found a farmer in Spain who was looking for sort of farm help, like, like a hand. 
And so I contacted him. And of course, I have to like go back into the internet cafe and keep checking, right? Um, and so I found him. He emails me back. Um, and I go, I'm his farmhand in, um, in southern Spain. And so I did that for uh, maybe three months. And, um, and then decided I was done with that which we don't have time to get into all the reasons that I was done with that today. Oh, okay, um, okay. But, uh, but I decided that I wasn't really the best farmhand and horses really weren't my thing and I needed to move on from that. And I found this sort of this, this group of people, these, this hippie commune just about maybe 30 or 45 minutes away, people that were just living off the land. I mean, like seriously, raising children, have crops in the ground wow. and had teepees that fit 50 people. Like, in Spain. Right, like legitimately, and they were primarily um, English and um, German. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and they're not really Spanish. So, so this land was sort of given, like freely given to the people. And so, I decided I went down to the little town. I bought a sleeping bag and a tent, and I just decided I was just gonna d- just just make myself at home. So I, I did that. And you lived, and you lived with, with right? The, and they just welcomed you in as a well, not a so member much. of the community. Okay. okay. How did that work? <laughs> so I was there for about a month. And um, no, I mean, it, it was okay. Some people weren't just like all things, right? Some people were nice and people were a little more territorial. Sure. Um, and really what I found though, again, it was only a month. It wasn't, you know, extended period of time, but to my 22 year old self, it felt like a long time. And, uh, and what I really found was that folks there were really trying to grind out their own living and were always thinking about how they were going to make a buck. You know, like they spent their entire day basically figuring out how they were going to make olive oil or get lemons or, you know, trade for things that they could, you know, beg, barter, steal. And I just realized that that was actually the epitome of what I didn't want to participate in. So I found myself exactly full circle where I did not want to be. And I just came like this, like, yeah, it was just like a full force realization that by relinquishing sort of my position and privilege that I was doing exactly opposite of what I really wanted to do and what was going to make me happy. Wow. Yeah, it was really crazy. Had this, like, this moment. And so, you know, before we actually got on, you know, on mic, we, we were talking about my moment in the jail. And I said, well, it wasn't just one moment. You know, I had many moments. And that was one of them. Of course, I didn't say, hey, go start a nonprofit. It just said, this isn't it. Right. Um, and so... <laughs> I decided to kind of full force go the other way. So I, I called my parents. They uh, bought my plane ticket home. Again, I have like no money. They bought, bought my plane ticket home. I moved back in with them. I applied to school, decide I'm gonna go to college um, and decide I wanna do something in the social work or criminal justice realm. And I thought I might wanna be an attorney and was kind of dabbling in those ideas. I ended up going to the University of Washington when I did an internship in the county jail. Uh, in Seattle, and just had a really profound experience. And so I would say those were probably my two my two moments. And I think that last one was was more of an inflection point, right? It was more of a nudge towards, because I already thought I wanted to be an attorney. I thought I might want to work with people who were wrongly convicted. And then at that point, I realized I really wanted to do reentry work. And so that was about uh, halfway through my college. It was in 2004. I graduated in 2006, and then I, I just never looked back. Okay, so... <clears throat> Let's recap here a little bit. So, so we travel Europe. Mm-hmm. We spend some time uh, living with the hippies right. for a month in Spain. Uh, realize that you're more or less doing you're playing the same game, just with you know different instead right. of money. It's it's uh, olive oil and, and, and right. food and things right. of that nature. Okay, uh, and then you decide you want to so you want to be of service. You're just not 100 percent sure how. Mm-hmm. So we start going to college. You intern at this jail and you have an aha moment. Um, and that kind of leads you into 
the start of what you're currently doing. So let's talk about that a little bit. What, um, what your current business is, how that kind of started, and then you know, what your goals are with that. So I graduated college, and like most people, I think, that even if you know what you want to do, there's still lack of clarity around how you're going to get there and do it. So that's kind of how I left school. I feel lucky that I knew what I wanted to do, really, and the how is the tricky part. So I told myself that I was going to stop waiting tables. At the time, I was working in restaurants, which, again, is if you remember, that's what I did earlier on to sort of fund my adventures. So now I was just funding my college. And I told myself when I graduated, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop doing that. It's very hard to transition out of restaurant work because for a variety of different reasons. But it's just, it's easy, it's, it's good money, and it's, it's hard to make the, the jump, at least the initial jump. And so I told myself, I'm going to work in the field of reentry. And I was very committed to that. And it was a, a peanut butter and jelly situation. And I just... What do you mean by reentry? So I wanted to work with, I wanted to work in an organization that provided services to people getting out of incarceration. So reentry back into society. That's right. Got it. Okay. So, you know, there's not a lot of options there. You know, there's just sure. not a lot of options. And so I ended up transitioning actually right out of college to work at a homeless shelter. And I just felt like it was a step in the direction. It just wasn't where I wanted to be yet. It was a step in the direction. And I interviewed, while I was working for that homeless shelter, I interviewed for one of the only reentry, prison reentry organizations in the area. And... When I interviewed with them, I remember in the interview, I made a critical error in the interview. I still remember the exact oh, question no. that they asked me. What was it? The question was, how do you set boundaries with people? Like, how would you set a boundary with somebody who was on your caseload? What a great question. It okay. Was, and how did you? As soon as I gave my answer, I knew it was wrong and I knew I lost the job. What happened? What answer did you give and why was it wrong? I, I basically said that's diff it's very difficult to set boundaries. I really, really care about people and that's something that I will have to navigate essentially because this was gonna be my first job in the field. Right. Terrible. Terrible. As soon as I said it, I saw the entire, you know, body language shit. I was like, Oh no, I lost they it. They felt like you weren't ready. Right. Uh, They're like, We can't hire this girl. Yep. So I, I didn't get the job. But I remember um uh I remember watching this Will Smith movie, I think it was called Pursuit of Happiness. That's the one, right, where he has, he's homeless and he mm -hmm. um, is like pursuing this, this career and he's got a son. Um, well, mine wasn't nearly that bad. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't homeless or anything, but I remember watching and I became very inspired and I thought, I'm going to pursue this job, you know, to like the ends, you know? And so I called up the, the lady that was the hiring manager and she didn't pick up, but I remember leaving this like very um, intense voicemail for her that said, listen, like, I'll always want to work for you. This is like my life's passion. You know, please consider me for any other job that comes available. And then a few minutes later, she called me and they did. No way. And I got, and I got the job. And it, and it was you a, got the same job. It was a different, it was a, it was the same. They had multiple sort of caseworkers. Okay. Another caseworker position came open and I got it. And that caseworker position actually had the additional responsibility of going into the local jail and teaching classes, like reentry classes. And so as things often do in life, that worked out for me. I got really a better suited job for myself. And I went in and for the first time I started teaching classes to people coming out of, um, of jail. And it was right next door to the organization I was working at. The jail was adjacent. So I would just walk over essentially. And then I ran oh, a, wow. a caseload of people also coming out of, of, of jail primarily. And 
I worked at that organization for three years. And uh, I mean, there were aspects of it I loved. And there was also me recognizing that it was sort of the proverbial like revolving door of clients and that fundamentally we probably weren't doing much to change life trajectories. And I also had this very acute sense of sort of an us and them mentality where we sort of the service providers got to feel good at the end of the day because we handed things out to other people. And then we would sort of, you know, good luck as they would leave the, leave the office. And I just, over time at the beginning, you know, it was fine. And over time, as I just started seeing it in, in clear perspective, I just got very disillusioned with that sort of service model, which really ultimately propelled me into wanting to work for really an organization that was providing deep therapeutic and evidence-based services to people coming out of prison that truly could change life trajectories. Um, and that ultimately led me to start Turn 90, which is a nonprofit I run, not because I ever really wanted to start a nonprofit. I really didn't. That was not my intent at all. It was only because I couldn't find something else that I wanted to work for that represented the kind of life work I wanted to do. And then I was asked by multiple people to get it started once I started doing some volunteer work. So it didn't, what you wanted to do, mm -hmm. uh, the, the organization and the structure and the way you wanted to make an impact, mm -hmm. there wasn't something already in existence that you could plug into. Right. So you created it. Pretty much. I love that. I yeah. love that. Okay. So let's transition into that. So now uh, Turn 90, that is your, that's your current nonprofit organization. That's right. And you have um, a couple of things that, that you, you've talked about are included in what you provide, right? So what you just mentioned, the previous organization, you were kind of, you got to feel good about sending people off with, mm -hmm. you know, here you go, here's, here's a little bit of help, but kind of with the understanding that they didn't have a great chance once they were out there. Um, and so now you're providing supportive services, uh, mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, which I want to dive into that a little bit. Okay. Um, and then you help them with job placement assistance. So That's right. let's talk a little bit about that turn night. So once, once, um, so these are, these are people getting out of prison and then they, they are transferred to you or, or placed with you for a period of time and, and you kind of take over. How's that work? We work with people that have already been released from prison and they come to us usually voluntarily. Okay. So we are a place of employment for people coming out of prison who have sort of persistent criminal histories and uh, serious violent sometimes and felony charges. So people that are really locked out of the workforce. Uh, and so we become their employer. So first and foremost, people coming out of prison see us as an employer for themselves, an opportunity. And then, and so we, we employ people for 40 hours a week. The guys that we work with are on payroll for us, except for a lunch hour, they're paid for us for a full work week. And then while they're working, we provide other types of services for which they get paid for. And one of those things is an hour and a half daily cognitive behavioral therapy class. And what is cognitive behavioral therapy? So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT as it's known and many people know it by is a action oriented form of therapy. It's focused on helping people change thinking patterns that are leading to problematic behavior and develop coping skills, social skills and problem solving skills in order to better manage life situations. And so to clarify, CBT is not simply used to help people change criminal behavior, but it's used really across the spectrum to help people that are struggling with all sorts of different sort of emotional or mental challenges, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, depression. It's shown pretty much across the board to be very effective at helping people um, 
yeah, improve thinking and behavior. I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like something we could all benefit from. It is. A little cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, that was really, again, I guess another inflection point in my career was my own exposure to CBT through another organization I was working with when I moved to Charleston. Uh, This was the time in which I couldn't find an organization that provided the kinds of services that I wanted to deliver. And so I got exposed to CBT through that program, and I didn't know anything about it at the time. And, uh, and it really changed my own life, really. I was able to recognize the power of my own thoughts, develop my own strategies around social, social skills and problem solving, and really resiliency. And that's helped propel me forward over all these years. You know, it's, it's 10 years is a, is a long time to be grinding away at this project. And I have, feel like without my fundamental grasp and understanding and usage of CBT, I definitely wouldn't have gotten this far. And I think that's why I'm such a proponent of it. And also the evidence and the research just is very clear that that is one of the most effective ways of helping people change. Um, and it's the foundation of Turn 90. That is, it sounds like that's a really powerful tool. And it's it's something, so essentially you're, you're helping, um, it's not just a job you're giving these guys, right? So they have the opportunity to be employed, which which already kind of moves things forward. But now there's a, um, you're helping them kind of, I guess, you know, t- take back the power of their thoughts, right? Take back, I guess there's some accountability there, right? right. To, you know, here there's there's behaviors and there's thoughts that you're having that you can control. These are not out of your control. Right. It's and very that, empowering. Right. Yes. Yeah, empowering. It's, that's the word. Very empowering. And, and the other thing is it goes well beyond our relation, our time spent with them, right? It's, you know, to be cheesy, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Right. Right. I mean, that is the long-term benefit of engaging with us. And most people see Turn 90 and they think that we're an employer, Really, the business was completely built on providing accessible therapeutic services to people out of prison. The business is just our way to engage people and that level of treatment. Um, and so it's, it's almost like a bait and a switch. Mm-hmm. And most people will see employment and they'll say, oh, that's so great. And they will think that that's our primary like, you know, intervention. It's really not. The classes are our primary intervention because I ran classes for years, CBT class for years before we ever started the business. We literally started the business to support the classes. Uh, so it's it's the, the classes. And if you talk to the men that are in the program, if you ask them what the most important thing was, they will always say the classes, always, hands down. Even though they come for work, at the end, at the end they, they truly know what, the, what they got out of the program the most was, was what they learned. You have to give them what they want so you can give them what they need. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the other thing that we've done, which I think has been um, wonderful on many different levels, is we have hired our graduates to come back and deliver services with us. So 50% of my full-time permanent staff are program graduates themselves. So our classes are taught by graduate. Our our screen printing business is run by graduates. I'm really committed to that model. And so we source our own talent. And we show people, like, listen, like, this isn't just us saying that these guys are good enough for transitional work, but they're not good enough for permanent work. Right, it's just, right, right. it's just not true. And then there, there's so much more. Um, those guys are going to have more leverage with the, the guys that they're talking to because they've walked the walk, mm-hmm. right? And it's not, it's not just someone who's who's never been down this path mm-hmm. preaching to them. It's That's someone right. who has been, right? And not just somebody who's been down the path, but someone who literally like went through the same program and has come out right. the other side of it. Not just someone who's been incarcerated. It's proof right in front of them. Right. Yeah. And it's very, it's very, um, yeah, it's a very powerful message that we send. I mean, to the guys that we work with, to the uh, employers that we place them in at when they're done working with us. 
um, to our community partners, yeah. you know, to our donors. Like, listen, this isn't just an idea. This is this is the reality in which we live, and we fully believe it. I love it. So, what is the um, for for folks that are listening that want to be a part of this, possibly do business with you guys? What is the business that you engage in mm-hmm. that allows you to do all of these other things? We run a, a custom screen printing business. Well, we really run two because we have two turn ninety locations. We have one in Charleston, which is you know of course where I'm I'm located and, and based. But we have the other one in Columbia, South Carolina. We opened the Columbia location about 10 months ago. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Step. It's such a huge step. I mean, not just not just because we have a bigger footprint, but because we're proving that it can happen in other places. That's really the big, you know, the big win here. And it doesn't have to happen under my sort of watchful eye. Like, yes, I'm 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 supervising the whole project, but four out of five of my staff in Columbia are program graduates running that business. And that's just phenomenal. That's so it's, it's very cool to see it, see it, see it um, grow outside of myself. And any founder, I think, will tell you the same thing, that true success is seeing it go beyond, you know, beyond yourself. So, but the business. So we run two uh, custom screen printing businesses. Um, we print garments uh, for usually T-shirts. And it's usually for, for businesses. So small businesses, other nonprofits uh, is usually our market. So for, for companies that have printed gear and printed merchandise, we would love to print for you when you order awesome. from Turn 90, you hire men out of prison. And I like to think we do a fantastic job. That is awesome. And do you work primarily with local small business or do you do you ship and, and take big orders and, and all that? We do it all. I mean, I, you know, usually for most printers, you're a local business and we're printing primarily for local companies. But we also ship across the country people that uh, companies that are in, invested in sort of co- corporate, you know, responsible decision making have an interest, especially in the criminal justice and social justice word, world in using us. So people will pay more or they'll pay more for shipping to know that their order helped somebody get a job out of prison. So we do do shape, ship nationwide. That's awesome. Yep. And so you guys do screen printing. Um, do you also do hats, bags, like all, all sorts of garments? Yeah, we can, if we don't do it in-house, we can source it so that we can, you know, we can be sort of a one-stop shop for people. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, okay. Where is, we're going to kind of transition into, uh, kind of into our rapid fire section here. Okay. Towards the end of, of the interview. So, uh, where is Amy and or turn 90 in five years? We are looking at an upstate location now. So I feel very certain that the next time that we talk in five years, we will be able to talk about our third location that we're looking at opening in the upstate probably next fall. That was part of a strategic plan. And so I do feel like we're right on track with that. So we will have that location opened uh, and then we will have an evaluation. One of my big goals is to have an impact evaluation, truly have somebody come in, a third party, look at our data and determine the impact we're having and how we're having it. And whether that can be replicated outside of South Carolina, that's ultimately our goal is to become a national model of reentry and opening our third location, having that evaluation puts us into a position where we can then expand other states. That's amazing. Quick sidebar from the rapid fire. Mm -hmm. Why would it not work in another state? So community context really matters. So you need to have a lot of pieces in place in order to have a successful venture. It doesn't necessarily all have to do with what happens in the classroom or what happens in the print shop. If you don't have support from the local community, then you will likely not be successful. Funding is an issue. Support is an issue. Political support is an issue. There are a variety of different factors that matter. And then beyond that, if you look at um, industry, 
that can matter. If you look at transportation, that can matter. There's a lot of different factors, I think, that, that play into whether we're going to have success in other locations. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So we could probably go pretty deep down that rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. Another yeah, okay. yeah. That's not just a sidebar. Okay. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay. Back to rapid fire. Okay. Um, before we go into that, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you, learn more about Turn 90, just kind of get involved? Our website is a great source of, inf like most companies, are a great source of information and one of the best ways to learn more about me and more about the project. It's turn90.com, spelled out T-U-R-N-N-I-N-E-T-Y.com. And then, of course, we're on the socials. We got Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And, yeah, come find us. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. If you could go back in time to when you first started Turn 90 and give yourself a piece of advice. So we're talking, this is 10 years now? Yeah. 10 years. If you go back <laughs> 10 years, right, um, and give Amy a piece of advice, what would that be? I laugh when I say 10 years because I, I always think, like, uh, I, I explained to the people that we're just, like, we're not a pilot, like pilot anymore. Like we're just, you know, but I still, we're still sort of scrappy and I'm like, oh my gosh, at 10 years, you know, it feels like, yeah. it feels like we should be in a different place. But again, that's another, another that's a different <laughs> question. Um, my advice to myself 10 years ago is to just keep going, is to just keep going. I mean, I think there's a need and a want to know how it's going to work out and to feel like you have some certainty that, you know, the next rung of the ladder is going to be there, mm -hmm. right? It's scary to keep putting your hand up and reaching and not knowing if it's going to be there. And I just think you have to do it. And I tell myself that a lot, like keep reaching. You don't know if it's going to be there. And the other thing I do is I look back and I ask myself, was the rung of the ladder always there? Yep. It was always there. So you just have to go around blind faith and trust in yourself that everything you ever tried to make happen happened. Just keep going. I love that. I love that. I feel like a lot of people, I hope, you, I hope everyone's listening. I feel like we could all benefit uh, from that advice uh, 10 years ago or not. Okay, last question. If you could give one piece of advice to someone who's listening, who's maybe inspired by you and what you've done, and they want to either start their own business, maybe start their own nonprofit, um, you know, essentially take a big leap you know, and reach for that wrong that they can't see, what advice would you give them? That's a very nuanced question. I would say there's multiple pieces to that. One is that I'm, a, I'm a, as I've said multiple times in this interview, I'm a go for it kind of person. I'm a take a big leap kind of person. I remember when I quit my job to start Turn 90, I quit my job and waited tables for three years to start Turn 90. So I left a job and started waiting tables again when I was 30. So that's that felt like a risk for me. And I remember having a conversation with my sister and telling her, even if it doesn't work out, I'm not. I'm going to be in at least of a good place I am now. I'm not happy with my job. You know, I can go back and get a similar job that I'm not happy with if it doesn't work out. And I just gave myself two years to make it happen, right? And it took three for me to get my first funding. Uh, but then you're in it so deep, you just kind of keep going, right? Yeah. Again, you just keep going. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a believer in taking a leap. However, when it comes to starting a nonprofit, I get asked this a lot. And I usually recommend to people not to start a nonprofit. Um, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, it's, it's, there are so many nonprofits already and a lot of people doing really great work. Usually my recommendation to people is go make a bunch of money and fund a nonprofit that you really care about or work that you're really invested in or really hone your skills and work for a nonprofit that you really care about and that you're really invested in. I think that starting a nonprofit is extremely overrated as a nonprofit founder, 
Um, I'm having a blast, but you know, it's really, it's, it's extremely difficult and it requires a constant grind and focus. And I just feel like making a bunch of money and, and donating it is, you know, for me, I have a couple don't donors who've made this entire thing possible without them. It would not have been possible. They are as important as me in this venture. It's really, um, really eye-opening and interesting to hear you say that because there is a um, just in my adult life there's you come across people that they have a vision and it's a their heart is in a good place and they want to they want to do something they want to contribute in some way mm -hmm. and the word nonprofit is very oftentimes attached to whatever it is they're thinking about doing right um, and so it, it's just really interesting to hear you say that because ultimately whatever it is it still has to be funded right somehow it has to be a successful business and the skill set you're developing is the same skill sets as being a high-level entrepreneur. Exactly. That you could just apply there, make a bunch make of money. A bunch of make a bunch of money or hire people out of prison, right? Like we right. run a screen printing business to hire people out of prison. And then we rely on companies to hire our graduates. And they're having massive impact by doing that. So there, there's a lot of different ways, I think, to yeah. get at it. Um, you can be a social entrepreneur that doesn't run a nonprofit. So interesting. If anybody has questions, can they reach out to you directly sure. if they have more of questions course. about that? Yeah. I love it. Um, Amy, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for it was a blast. sharing your story. Thank you. Best of luck to turn 90. I appreciate uh, we will it. will definitely be supporting and, uh, and watching you guys along the way. Talk to you in five years. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds good. Booked it. Thanks, Amy.